In December 1651, the young Dutchman Ludovic Huygens arrived in London as part of a diplomatic mission to the new Commonwealth of England. His party was taken on a tour of Whitehall Palace, once the principal residence of the Stuart monarchs and now the headquarters of the Republic. Here he heard a sermon preached in the chapel and he admired among the large crowd there an attractive and rather bejeweled young lady. She was listening attentively and taking notes. In the great audience chamber, the banqueting house, which still stands, they were shown the window through which Charles I had gone to the scaffold and were encouraged to lean out to get the full effect. Overhead, Rubens's paintings of the apotheosis of, Charles, of James I still soared, but many of the palace's walls bore smoky shadows where Charles I's great painting collection had once hung, recently taken down and sold to pay the state's bills. Since the execution of the king two years earlier, there had been no single sovereign to whom diplomats could present their credentials. Instead, the Dutch party was ushered into the great room that had once been the Queen's presence chamber and was now a grand committee room. Here, 24 members of the Executive Council of State were meeting around a long table. Chairing the meeting that day was the lawyer, Bulstrode Whitelock. Missing from the meeting due to illness was the head of the army, one General Cromwell. The councillors rose respectfully and the ceremony of arrival was performed. The diplomats' papers were accepted on behalf of the Republic by Whitelock for the council and by the Speaker of the House of Commons on behalf of the people. Being from a Republic themselves, the Dutchmen were untroubled by all this novelty. Already the clocks had been reset and the audience took place in what was solemnly called the third year of freedom by God's blessing restored. As far as they or anyone else knew, monarchy was gone for good. Periods of crisis are quickeners of change. As we've all learnt these past two years, however unwelcome, prohibitions and restrictions can act as catalysts, hastening things on, in the adoption of technology, in working practices, in personal habits and priorities. And so it was that the decade of republicanism in the British Isles, though destructive in many ways, acted as an extraordinary stimulus. It was a constitutional failure. The monarchy was restored in 1660 and has never returned in Britain, although of course it has done in Ireland. But other aspects of life in a time of crisis and conflict were not only to endure, but would become fundamental to the development of Britain and British history ever after. The English Republic came into being in the early weeks of 1649. For much of the previous decade, the British Isles had been embroiled, of course, in a destructive civil war, sparked by a conflict over religion and political authority. Some 130,000 people died in combat and of disease and famine, and tens of thousands were made homeless. Almost 200 country houses were destroyed, among them wonderful old Camden House, which I show you uh, a slide of the remnant of there on the right, which the Landmark Trust um, is now the owner of. Um, but this was only one of, the, of uh, 200 um, significant country houses that were uh, destroyed. Over 150 towns were extensively damaged. Royalists, royalists and parliamentarians alike wrought destruction. Some towns and cities were hammered by actual fighting, Colchester and Pontefract among them. Others saw wholesale demolition in anticipation of attack. Churches were targeted by Puritans inside and out. Their monuments and fittings considered abominably papist uh, and were pulled down as a consequence. Stained glass was smashed, altars torn down, and, and cathedral spires, such as that at Litchfield, bombarded with artillery. But notwithstanding all this violence and iconoclasm, this had never been a war between royalists and republicans. Very few people contemplated anything so radical as a republic during the years of war. 
Instead, the argument was about what sort of, uh, what form of Protestantism the nations of the British Isles should espouse and what the extent of royal power should be, not whether there should be royal power. During those years, the rank and file of the army had become increasingly radical and soon had aspirations for change which outstripped those of many of their officers and the wider political nation. After the parliamentarians won the war and it looked likely a deal would be done with the king that would see him reinstated on restricted terms, the army intervened. The House of Commons was suddenly and unexpectedly purged by army officers on the 6th of December 1648 and 186 moderate MPs were physically prevented from entering the chamber. A further 86 members left in protest at this, leaving behind what would come, come to be known as the rump parliament, the residue of around 200 MPs considered radical enough by the army to be allowed to remain. This group voted to put the king on trial, and on the 30th of January 1649, he was beheaded before a transfixed crowd on the street we now call Whitehall, near where the cenotaph stands today. The office of king was abolished, as was the House of Lords, and the Church of England was already being radically reformed with the abolition of bishops and of the Book of Common Prayer. For the following 11 years, England would remain a republic on a series of changing constitutional terms, with Ireland and Scotland soon bound to it by conquest. For four years, known as the Commonwealth, the House of Commons was the single sovereign body and government in the hands of a Council of State. For a further five years, a modified version of this prevailed, the Protectorate, in which sovereignty was shared between Parliament and a powerful steward in the form of the Lord Protector, a position held first by the soldier and MP Oliver Cromwell, and then briefly by his son Richard. For the final year, an attempt to reinstate the Commonwealth gave way to bitter fighting between Parliament and the army, from the chaos of which the restoration of the monarchy emerged as the only remaining solution. Much debate and discussion has been had over the centuries about who were the heroes and who the villains of this extraordinary time. The authors of the great historical satire, 1066 and all that, as ever perfectly encapsulated the contradictions of what they called the struggle between the cavaliers, wrong but romantic, and the roundheads, right but repulsive. Was Charles I wronged? Were the moving figures of the Republic right-minded progressives or murderous despots? The purpose of this talk, sorry, the decade has also been dominated by discussion of the figure of this man, of course, Oliver Cromwell. Now, the purpose of this talk, uh, which may be a disappointment, is not to deal with either of those issues. The matter of who was right and who was wrong is, to my mind, perhaps the least interesting question to ask, mired as it inevitably is in modern attitudes to what is right or wrong and the difficulties of navigating those when looking at the behaviour of people in the past, uh, when attitudes were very different. Instead, it seems much more fruitful to think about why people acted as they did and how the changes of the period actually affected people's lives. Secondly, I'm not really going to talk uh, at, at all about Oliver Cromwell, although he is discussed at length in my book, because while he was the single most important figure of the Republican decade, he did not bring the Republic about. He was not its founding father, he was not the head of the army that won the Civil War. He was not even in England for much of the formative first two years of the Republic. The purpose of this talk is instead to explore what the reality of that exceptional time was through a series of others who lived and breathed its unfamiliar air. First, we turn to the man who sat at the fore of the event that heralded in the Republic, the trial of Charles I. John Bradshaw, who you see here on the left, was 46 when he acted as president of the High Court convened to try the king. He was a lawyer by profession, active in London, but he didn't come from revolutionary stock. He'd been born and brought up in comfort and wealth at Marple Hall, which you see here in Cheshire. 
His was a respectable family who gave uh, money to the church plate, dressed in fashionable textiles, uh, drank alcohol, and gambled. Bradshaw was tutored in the strongly providential, <clears throat> providential views of the day. All unexplained or exceptional occurrences were to be understood as God's actions, interventions in which his judgment was expressed. So, for instance, when the performing bear at the May Day festivities in his town mauled its owner, the meaning was clear. God was expressing his disapproval of such events. Bradshaw had trained as a lawyer in London and then returned to his native Cheshire. A second son, he established his own base in the town of Congleton, where he rose to become mayor. And it was in this position that catastrophe hit. A ferocious wave of bubonic plague overtook the town in 1641. Bradshaw struggled to contain it. The plague pre preparations that he had put in hand were completely overwhelmed. Timber quarantine cabins were built to house those in forced isolation. Dogs and cats were exterminated as being thought to spread infection. Grave diggers were paid danger money to bury the piles of infected corpses. And shops were closed, bringing the economic life of the town to a complete standstill. It took two years for Congleton to be free of plague. And when it finally was, Bradshaw packed his bags and made for London. In the years that followed, John Bradshaw became closely associated with the parliamentarian cause. His religious views aligned with many of those uh, who criticised Charles I, uh, a man he came to regard as more cruel than Nero. He rose to be a judge. Nonetheless, when he was asked to chair the court created to try Charles I in January 1649, he he hesitated. He tried to decline, as many others did, but in the end agreed, believing that God required it, because in his words, it was as much a sin to spare the guilty as it was to condemn the innocent. Uh, Charles I, who, now this is a, the, a famous engraving of the trial, it's sort of highlighted in yellow as the figure of Charles I in the dock there with his back to us, and then uh, at the, on the dais um, at, the, at the fore of the um, commissioners of the trial, John Bradshaw facing him. Um, Charles I never entered a plea, refusing to acknowledge the legitimacy of the court, and he was condemned as a consequence. Bradshaw held his nerve throughout, remaining calm and dignified in the conduct of his office. When the new Council of State was appointed, Bradshaw was asked to take its chair. For better or worse, he had bought into the concept of the new republic, in which the people in Parliament were now the source of all sovereignty, and he would devote the rest of his life to trying to uphold it. And this famously is the seal of the Republic, which the, the Great Seal normally had a picture of the, of the sovereign on it. And here it was replaced with this remarkable image of the assembled members of Parliament as the new um, representatives of sovereignty. Watching the astonishing political events of the year 1649 with as sharp an eye as any was Marchmont Needham, a small pot-bellied man in his 20s with a sharp wit and a talent for friendship, Needham was the vigilante publisher of the royalist newspaper Mercurius Pragmaticus. The name of his paper was a head-on acknowledgement of his political position. He had started his career in journalism working for a parliamentary title, but having got into political hot water had changed sides. Journal journalism was an entirely new profession. A generation before, newspapers had not even existed in Britain. Since they first appeared around 1620, their popularity and number had expanded dramatically, hastened by the political controversies of the Civil War. Now newspapers were in the hands of innkeepers and weavers, apothecaries and apprentices across the country. So strong was the hand of the army on London during Charles I's trial that Needham didn't manage to get a paper to press at all in those eventful weeks. Parliamentary agents were on his tail, working now for the Council of State, chaired by John Bradshaw. Needham used the suspense as a journalistic device, opening his uh, issue on the 1st of May 1649 with the words, 
Now the beagles must go a-hunting again, and I must be the hare, for so it pleaseth Master Bradshaw. While much 17th century prose was written in long, complex sentences, this was not Marchmont Needham's way. He knew how to excite and engage his readership, and it was precisely his fearless, satirical writing that had got him in trouble. He taunted the Lord President of the Council himself as Bradshaw, that dirty upstart, that half-man and beast, that prodigious monster, that walking hell, one who had to be guarded by soldiers to prevent the people tearing him in pieces. He repeatedly denounced the rump parliament in print, reminding his readers of its unorthodox beginnings and the soaring irony of its claim to represent the people. As a number of MPs who had been excluded in the army purge resumed their seats, Needham marvelled that they didn't stumble at the door, though his majesty's blood lie at the threshold. For all their talk of liberty and taste for grandiose symbols of their new authority, these men of the House of Commons, he said, were supreme puppets, while poor liberty lies fettered now like a fly in a cobweb. Reporting on a civic procession in which the Lord Mayor of London surrendered his sword to the Speaker of the Commons in recognition of parliamentary sovereignty, Needham told his readers that Oliver laughed in his sleeve, knowing that it was with his own steel blade and the might of the army that true authority now lay. Marchmont Needham was captured in 1649, June, and clapped in Newgate Prison. After failing to negotiate his release, and with his trial drawing closer, he decided to take matters into his own hands and somehow escaped. As he did so, the New Republic struggled with its own problems. A rising by the radical levellers was put down, and an army was sent to prevent Ireland from falling into the hands of the young titular king, Charles II. The massacre of a large number of civilians on the Irish campaign was incendiary news and a crackdown on all newspaper publishing was set in train just as reports reached England in September 1649. The Republic had a massive public relations challenge on its hands, and Marchmont Needham, in hiding, saw his opportunity. He wrote to John Bradshaw and proposed that he, Needham, should be released from all charges and be taken on instead to produce a new paper that would transform the Republic's reputation. The leaders of the Commonwealth must have hesitated to deal with someone who had so relentlessly insulted and excoriated them. But with Charles I's purported memoirs, Icon Basilica, a runaway bestseller, and a cult of the Mart King fast-forming, they knew they had a fight on their hands. Swallowing their misgivings, Marchmont Needham was hired. The first issue of his new paper, Mercurius Politicus, The News of the State, was published in early June 1650. It opened with the memorable challenge, why should not the Commonwealth have a fool as well as the king had? For the following nine years, this sparky, snappy paper would appear, appear weekly on a Thursday and become the indispensable house journal of the English Republic. Needham was paid for his efforts but he soon hardly needed to be, as the success of his paper and the income from the classified ads he was soon running made it a money spinner. While he had a lively, irre irreverent style, Needham also prided himself on the reliability of his content, and his network of news gatherers and foreign correspondents soon made Mercurius Politicus widely read right across Europe and also on the other side of the Atlantic. Needham knew where his financial loyalties lay and was careful to steer clear of the most controversial aspects of the new regime. The army returned, mud and blood splattered from conquering Ireland and Scotland, to find that the rump parliament hadn't effected the wholesale religious and social reforms that they had sought. Needham made no mention of the anger this generated. And when, on the 23rd of April, 1653, Oliver Cromwell evicted the rump MPs by force from the chamber, famously telling them that they had sat too long for all the good that they had done, or words to that effect, 
Needham apologised to his readers that sadly lack of space prevented him from going into any further details. Mercurius Politicus was on sale in London from the Mercury Sellers Baskets on a Thursday, reaching the market towns in much of the rest of England by the weekend. Among the many who received the weekly news packet were the Lestrange family of Hunstanton in North Norfolk. Sir Hammond Lestrange, the elderly head of the family, had fought briefly for the king at the very beginning of the Civil War before being defeated at the Siege of King's Lynn in 1643. By the mid-1650s, he and his wife had become reconciled to the new regime. Hammond and his two older sons had signed the engagement, which was the oath of loyalty to the new republic required of all adult men. And they took no part in Charles II's attempt to reclaim the throne in 1651. The Lestranges had been hard hit financially. The terms of the settlement after the siege had required them to pay for much of the damage that was done to the town as a result. This included rebuilding the medieval almshouses at Gaywood, which, as the stone plaque records on the outside of the building, had been burned down during the siege. Like other royalists, they had also had lands sequestered and had to pay hefty fines to regain possession. It was in print, too, that Hammond and Alice Lestrange learned of the new constitution instituted in December 1653. The Republic lived on in name, but it was now to be a mixed constitution, a protectorate, in which the new Lord Protector, Oliver Cromwell, would share sovereignty with Parliament. Hammond Lestrange acquired a copy of the written constitution, which you see here on the left, known as the Instrument of Government, our first written constitution, and shelved it alongside a wide range of other titles in the Hunstanton Hall Library. The Republic had brought changes to the Lestrange family, as it had done to many others. The Church of England had been radically reformed in the mid-1640s to strip it of the residue of medieval traditions, beloved of Charles I, of which the Puritans disapproved, on the basis, on the basis that they were not mentioned in the Bible. Church interiors had become much simpler, and I show you a, a surviving church from the late 1650s here uh, at Guyhan. Uh, the interiors had become much simpler. The church festivals of Christmas and Easter, Whitsun and Michaelmas, Candlemas and All Saints had all gone, as had the bishops and the structure that they had furnished. Marriages were now secular, not church affairs, and the Book of Common Prayer, which had specified all the festivals and ceremonies of the church year, was replaced with a new spare directory of worship. Meanwhile, a new degree of acceptance was extended to those who were considered properly godly, but who wished to organise themselves into independent congregations outside the national church. In reality, only a tiny proportion of the population fell into one of these nonconformist groups. Baptists, Quakers, Fifth Monarchists and all their brethren accounting for less than 5% of the population as a whole. While traditional Anglicans uh, were denied the familiar forms of worship, uh, no amount of Westminster prohibition could just stop centuries of tradition. Music and merrymaking in church was now banned, but what went on elsewhere was another matter altogether. At Hunstanton Hall, as in many other places, Christmas festivities continued despite the bans, with the accompanying feasting, music and dancing, giving and receiving of presents, eating of plum puddings and playing of games. And this is a lovely uh, engraving um, which shows Father Christmas here in the middle turning up in England to be told to, to go away by the gentleman uh, on the left of the slide, a, a sort of well-to-do urbanite, and welcomed in by the countryman on the right-hand side, uh, which is quite a nice encapsulation of that, uh, of that tension. The Lestrange family always sent New Year's gifts of venison to their favoured neighbours, and by the mid-1650s, they were including their erstwhile Civil War opponents among the recipients, including Oliver Cromwell's brother-in-law, the parliamentarian governor of King's Lynn. Trade now traversed the world as never before, spurred on by the more stable trading conditions since 1649, and furs from Russia, textiles from India, and spices from the Far East graced the affluent parlours of England. Both the pomposity and prim affectations of the high church bishops beloved by Charles I 
and the disorderliness of nonconformist meetings led by itinerant, itinerant preachers provoked peals of laughter at Hunstanton Hall. As a family, the Lestranges shared an irrepressible sense of humour. Uh, and they noted down hundreds of their favourite jokes and anecdotes in a ledger that still survives. These included stories of drunken evenings in provincial inns, of ribald Norwich prostitutes and dour Dutch drainage engineers, of cuckold, their neighbour's dog, and Wigget, the Hunstanton fool, and of the many misadv uh, misadventures of Mr Prick, the unfortunately named minister of the next-door parish. Incomers of all unfamiliar tastes were regarded as suspect. Norfolk and its traditional ways was their home ground. As, uh, as was uh, re remarked at Hunstanton Hall, London would be a marvellous, fine, sweet place if only it stood in the country. After centuries of being at the heart of the government of their locality, the Lestranges had had to bow out of public affairs. They could no longer be MPs, uh, those who had fought for the king were ineligible to stand, and their traditional place as justices of the peace, members of the local commissions that managed most of the day-to-day -day business of county government, um, had also gone. But with Alice Lestrange's careful management of their financial affairs, they had been able to regain their lands and seemed to have resolved to accept the new world order as they found it. An act of oblivion passed in February 1652 formally declared the crimes and misdemeanours of the Civil War forgiven and forgotten. Old enmities were to be set aside in the interests of healing and settling. The spirit of reconciliation was in the air. Most people of all classes had not, after all, actively fought for either side in the Civil War. As one seasoned parliamentarian noted in the 1650s, most people care not what government they live under, so long as they may plough and go to market. Had this period of calm lasted, the Republic might well have endured. But it was not to be. In 1655, the new protectorate suffered two major blows to its confidence. First, a plan for a widespread royalist uprising was unearthed. Second, an ambitious enterprise to seize Spanish territories in the Caribbean, part of a plan to export the godly republic abroad, ended in disaster. The Lord Protector and his councillors were left stunned. Uh, the, the, their plan had been to try to seize the island of Hispaniola, which is the pink um, uh, island in the middle of that um, uh, engraving there, um, and they had been thwarted in this uh, and um, felt very... Um, humiliated as a result. Um, the Lord Protector uh, and his councillors were left stunned. After the almost unbroken military victories of the Civil War, God now let, dealt them a colossal defeat. The message was clear. They were disappointing him. There followed a wave of new measures to further moral and religious reform. Key to implementing these was the creation of a network of major generals, regional military rulers, who were given the job of overseeing this process of greater reform. It was to be paid for by a new 10% tax to be levied on all royalists and Catholics. In a stroke, the process of reconciliation was halted. Old enmities were reignited, and unforgettable indignities visited on families like the Lestranges by the energetic band of young major generals backed by heavily armed militias. The requirement on all adult men to sign the oath of engagement, the oath of loyalty to the Republic, had seen those who refused lose their positions. Heavily royalist places suffered the most, uh, and few were more royalist than Oxford, where Charles I had been based for the first years of the Civil War. The beneficiaries of the exodus from university positions that followed were the young academics who might otherwise have waited long years to acquire a post. Among them, among them was a tall, short-sighted young man with a head of thick brown hair. William Petty did not come from a gentry family, like John Bradshaw or Hammond Lestrange. He didn't have an educated clergyman as a stepfather, like Marchmont Needham. His father was a small-time clothier on the south coast, 
and it was only misadventure as a young sailor that had caused his course to radically alter. Having been put ashore, injured and penniless, he found his way to the Jesuit uh, University in Caen. His extraordinary memory and his conspicuous cleverness recommending him. The 1640s saw William Petty in Paris, and by 1649, he was studying anatomy in Oxford. Here, he met a crowd of ambitious young men who, like him, were exhilarated by the new scientific thinking. The assumptions of classical science about the elements, the continents, and the skies were being shaken, and now this group of young men, promoted fast by political turmoil, were coming uh, and operating in a world where political as well as philosophical holy cows had been slain, were coming to the fore. William Petty was studying anatomy and just a year after completing his doctorate found himself appointed Oxford Professor of Anatomy. Since 1649, Petty and his, young fellow, his fellow young scientists had been meeting weekly in his rooms on the High Street in Oxford, calling themselves the Oxford Experimental Philosophy Club. His downstairs neighbour, the chemist and apothecary John Clark, provided the exotic ingredients for many of their activities. This was the first proper research, scientific research society with regular meetings and rules for election and the management of business. Individually and collectively, this group would, through trial and error, observation and measurement, bring about fundamental changes in the human understanding of the world. Each week at their meeting, this group of young men, almost all in their 20s and 30s, undertook practical experiments, the lifeblood of their association. Their research ranged across a dazzling array of subjects, from the valves of the veins to the spots on the sun and its rotational axis, from the existence or not of vacuums to the weight of air, from the hypotheses of Copernicus to the works of Galileo and divers other things of like nature. Among their number was John Wilkins, the recently appointed warden of Wadham College, who, with his talented young protégé, Christopher Wren, was having an enormous telescope built for examining the moon. Another, Seth Ward, the first Oxford professor of astronomy to teach Copernicus, was setting up a chemical elaboratory. To Wilkins, it was clear that there are many secret truths which the ancients have passed over that are yet left to make some of our age famous for their discovery. In 1652, William Petty was offered a lucrative position as physician to the Commonwealth Army in Ireland. The Republic's bloody campaign there, which Cromwell himself had led, was now over. Hundreds of thousands had died to bring the island, to bring the island under the control of the Puritan English government. The bodies may have been buried, but the financial cost had yet to be paid. In a fateful formulation that dated to Charles I's time, both the funders and the fighters of the English army were to be paid in lands confiscated from the vanquished Irish. Not until this could be achieved, the army could not be disbanded and the immense costs would continue to mount. But the crucial stumbling block in this was the lack of information. Accurate maps simply did not exist for most of Ireland, uh, which was crucial for this reallocation of the lands of the conquered Irish to be affected. A group of professional surveyors had been tasked with remedying this. As they bustled in and out of meetings in Dublin Castle, William Petty looked on with disbelief. The task was clearly going to take most of a decade, and the costs would be astronomical and the results unreliable. William Petty could not stop himself from intervening. He put it to his master the protector's able second son, Henry Cromwell, that he should be given the contract instead. He would sack the surveyors and train up the underemployed soldiers in their place, teaching them to undertake each aspect of the cartographical process, measuring, calculating, drawing, scaling, and so on. He would create far more accurate maps, produce them for a much lower cost, and undertake the entire exercise in one year. So it was that the most ambitious mapping project in the history of the British Isles was launched. 
it would be two centuries before England would be mapped with comparable accuracy. William, Confetti, William Petty would confound his many sceptics to complete the task in, four, in 13 months. The Down Survey, as it was called, set new standards in mapping and in the management of men and projects and provided the basis for an epic redistribution of land. Uh, Petty himself was no particular fan of the process of redistribution. He took issue with aspects of the whole um, enterprise, but he felt that if it were to be done, it should be done accurately. Before 1640, about two-thirds of Ireland had been owned by Irish men and women, mostly Catholics. Uh, by 1660, thanks to the programme of confiscations, three-quarters of Ireland was in the hands of Protestants from mainland Britain. There it would remain. The disenfranchisement of the Irish had been effected, and the consequences would reverberate down the centuries. The tensions between the army and parliament with which the Republic had begun never went away. The kingless state had never enjoyed the support of the political nation, and the real possibility that people might have learned to live with it was wiped out by the invasive policies of the mid-1650s. After Oliver Cromwell died, his dominating presence was gone, and the all-out conflict between parliament and the army uh, was the consequence. Out of this maelstrom, the restoration of the monarchy soon seemed to many, including plenty who had fought against Charles I, as the more likely route to stability. Crucial among those who became convinced of this was Anne Clarge, wife of the soldier General George Monk, head of the Commonwealth Army in Scotland. Anne had met her husband 15 years earlier in a remarkable encounter when he was a prisoner in the Tower of London and she the laundry woman who took care of the prisoner's clothes. The pair had married, almost certainly bigamously, and she enjoyed her husband's complete confidence. As the couple looked on at the political chaos in London following Cromwell's death many years later, she urged her husband to act. He declared his opposition to his fellow army officers in London and his determination to uphold Parliament. Only a respected soldier could turn the formidable Republican army against its senior officers, and spurred on by Anne, this is exactly what George Monk did. Once a full Parliament was at last allowed to meet, it voted, as it probably always would have done, to restore the monarchy. While the Republic ended in May 1660, the experiences of the past decade could not simply be struck out. The old, order, old world order had gone, and in spite of the restoration of the monarchy, the effects of those years would endure. The military force necessary to wage war and to keep control once it had been won had brought with it a significant expansion in the state. Central government had grown considerably. The major generals had been just one ingredient of the far more centralised state that had operated in those years. And, and we have to really remember here that until this time, the government of um, England and indeed of, uh, of, of the British Isles was overwhelmingly a local enterprise. It was The central government was, was com compared to today, tiny. But the effects of the centralised uh, management of the army and of the major general's regime through the 1650s saw a real increase in the scale of, uh, of central government in a way that would, um, would not go away at the Restoration. Maintaining a standing army and a navy strong enough to shore up a revolutionary regime had meant higher taxes and more men and administrative machinery. And much of this would outlive the Republic. It wasn't in Charles II's interest in 1660 to forego the much greater financial resources that um, the state had had at its disposal during those years of the mid-1650s. The need to see off challenges to the new regime had forced a deeper integration of the British Isles than had ever been attempted. Scotland and Ireland had both been conquered militarily by the English Republican Army. Ireland was subject to the wholesale redistribution of land that would disenfranchise its Catholic population, and Scotland was bound together with England in a parliamentary union 
that would be reborn in the Act of Union of 1707. From 1656, uh, for the rest of the decade, we see uh, that, that, that after that Act of Union had been passed, uh, MPs from Ireland and from Scotland came to Westminster, and it was a British Parliament for the first time in uh, the history of the British Isles. And uh, that was sort of um, a kind of a foretelling of what would happen permanently in 1707. People were more literate than ever before. Daily consumption of newspapers and printed works had brought the nation into regular contact with national and international affairs. In 1660, the Oxford scientists would move to London. Following a lecture by Christopher Wren at Gresham College, August Institution, they renamed themselves the Royal Society and attracted the restored king himself as their patron. Charles II would be a great supporter of the activities of this new royal society. And when William Petty uh, met Charles II for the first time and had a, an interview with him, he uh, was at pains to apologise to Charles II for the fact that he had been part of the Republican regime. He'd worked for Henry Cromwell. And as he was stammering out his apology, Charles II interrupted him and said, well, I don't, I'm not interested in that. Tell me about your plans for a new design for a double-hulled boat. Here was a, here was a sovereign who was really, really interested in this, this whole new world of scientific thinking. Uh, the, the members of the Royal Society would, of course, go on to be at the forefront of a new era of scientific endeavour that itself would go on to help spark an industrial revolution. New tastes had been established during those tumultuous years, that would never fade, never fade. There was famously a ban on um, uh, theatres for much of the 1650s. The theatrical productions were prohibited, uh, principally because they were seen as um, events where royalists were likely to congregate, congregate and plot against um, the Republic. Um, but that in itself, that prohibition, created an incentive for impresarios to come up with alternatives. Uh, the most enduring among, among them was a new art form known as opera. And the first opera was performed in Covent Garden in 1656, right in the middle of this period. The first coffee house had opened in, opened in England, uh, in Oxford, in 1651. And come the restoration, as is familiar to us today, a coffee shop was to be found on the corner of almost every street in the West End of London. In many ways, it was the restoration of 1660 rather than the Commonwealth years of the 1650s that would prove the aberration. In that remarkable decade were sown the seeds which would soon flower. By the end of the century, much that the Republic had pioneered had become part of the mainstream of the British Isles. Freedom of the press, freedom of worship, naval and military might, scientific endeavour, and a belief in the supremacy of Parliament. In 1657, the East India Company was granted a new charter and the British state embarked upon its first trans-oceanic colonial mission. While the um, expedition to take Hispaniola had been unsuccessful, the island of Jamaica was taken uh, instead on the return journey. Um, and there was established the first British colony uh, in the island of Jamaica. Just as that island had not been the original goal, so the consequences would be unexpected. As British endeavours overseas prospered and the miserable human cargoes were transported across the Atlantic to work the sun-baked fields of the Caribbean, so began the international expansionism that would dominate the relationship between the British archipelago and the world for centuries to come. Charles Dickens's words on the French Revolution, therefore, offer something of a fitting epilogue to the story of the English Revolution a century before. As he famously put it in the opening lines of the great novel, A Tale of Two Cities, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief, it was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope, and it was the winter of despair.
Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Dr. Kay. I've, I'm going to start with a couple of questions from online before we go to the audience in the room. Um, the first question is about Cromwell's army being in power. Is it known how the population reacted? Were they extremely fearful? Or did they endeavour to be invisible and get on with their lives? Yes, so the, the, um, the experience of there being this enormous army... Uh, was a really defining one of the period. I mean, of course, the thing you always have to remember about this decade, the 1650s, is it came after um, nearly a decade of war. Um, and, and, you know, that wasn't Cromwell's army. That was a royal army and a parliamentarian army. Uh, Cromwell was a, an officer in it, but it wasn't, wasn't his. Um, and there is no doubt that the experience of uh, the nation kind of putting up with that army was, was a really... Um, a, a really horrible one because of course there was no tradition of having an army there was no infrastructure there weren't barracks and you know victualling yards and all the kind of stuff that would come later you know this was a, 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 these were thousands and thousands of men who had to have food to eat had to have somewhere to stay and what that meant was um, essentially they were kind of fostered on the on the population so they would if you were if you lived in you know in Guildford or you lived in Grantham or wherever it was suddenly, you know, from nowhere, there'd be this enormous band of, of soldiers and uh, they could essentially requisition anything of yours. There's, there was supposed to be a system where they, you know, they gave you a chit and you got paid for it, but it never really worked. And so that would mean that all your supplies, your, you know, your seed corn, your, you know, your oats and everything that you had laid in for the winter would all be, you know, grabbed and fed to the horses. And meanwhile, they might well be busy, you know, putting down the the, the, the ornaments in your church or doing whatever it was. So it was a horrible experience and it is definitely the case that a lot of what people felt in the 1650s, I think you can only understand off the back of that, which is to say everyone was desperate for that not to continue. So people's exhaustion with war was, was, was very great and, and, and you know, many of the deaths that were caused, most of the deaths that were caused were not directly caused by fighting in the Civil War but were caused by the consequences, disease, deprivation, famine... Um, which followed it. So um, I don't think there were many people that welcomed Oliver's army or indeed the Royalist army um, and people longed for it to be over. Uh, second question from online. Um, how far can the English Civil War be explained in terms of class conflict? <laughs> well, um, uh, so there's a, this is a sort of a big area of discussion about what were the causes of the English Civil War. And um, I, I, there was a time when, particularly very much influenced by Marxist writing, where, where a sort of the, the lens through which um, the English Civil War was looked at was very much one of class conflict of the sort that um, you know, was kind of informed by things like the Russian Revolution. Now, I think uh, that now is absolutely um, not how we understand it, really. I mean, the, the, the English Civil War, the leaders of both sides were, um, on the whole, gentry, there wasn't one class against another class. You know, as my book tries to show, somebody like John Bradshaw, he tries the king. He's not, you know, he's not part of the sort of dispossessed, toiling, urban, clothier population or something. He is a, he's a gentry figure. There were arguments about, uh, about religion and about the extent of uh, authority of the king that were really the big issues. There was clearly a, a, an appetite for, for, um, for, for, for wider social change, not least as voiced by groups like the Levellers. But I think to see it as one class against another is, is, is absolutely not what the English Civil War was about, although there were, uh, there were uh, aspects of it in terms of what was being argued for that would have improved the lot of you know, one group of people rather than another. Dr Kay, thank you very much. I was fascinated by what you said about the mapping of Ireland, particularly because you then said that there was great centralisation of government in the rest of the United Kingdom. So why didn't that centralised government want to have their land mapped with a similar degree of accuracy and detail? Why didn't they want that, did you say? Yeah. So it's very interesting. Um, the bit, the map, mapping of Ireland was uh, you know, done, as I was explaining, for a very particular purpose. It was to be able to define you know, what land you had in order to take it from you to give it to somebody else. So it wasn't a process that was viewed with any favour by 
almost anybody in Ireland. And actually, the book talks at length about what I found fascinating, which is the actual process of how do you go about mapping an entire country, and one that has very complicated geography and so on. Um, so it was serving a, it was serving a, um, a, 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 a very clear political purpose, if you like. And the very interesting thing is that William Petty was incredibly proud of the maps. He said, I've mapped the equivalent of three times around the world. I mean, it was a most astonishing undertaking. Because the, the, you can look at those maps online, and I really encourage you to do it. There's a website called The Down Survey, and you can see every tiny little sub-parish in Ireland, as it was in the 1650s, with churches, the, what land was boggy. You know, it's amazing. But um, the reason that... Um, that wasn't then extended to, um, to England or more broadly, is, is really that mapping was, about, was a tool of conquest. Uh, you know, so when we see the mapping of Scotland, which really happens in the 18th century with William Roy's great maps, it is similarly about trying to kind of control the Scots at the time of the Jacobite uprisings. So there was a great suspicion about mapping, and actually it's really not until the Ordnance Survey gets going in the middle of the 19th century that England was mapped. And it was a lot to do with people's resistance to it, because people didn't want to have that kind of level of control exerted over them. Um, and it was a measure of how, how kind of fundamentally Ireland was in the grip of the Puritan regime, that their, that their kind of... Um, their sort of sovereignty involved this kind of detailed capturing of that nation in order then to engineer a redistribution, which wasn't ever affected completely, but certainly on a scale that, you know, was to change, you know, Ireland's history fundamentally forever. I was interested in your comment about newspapers. And, yes. uh, and the, the, the chap who uh, was taken on to do communications for the Commonwealth um, and the suppression of uh, material that was antithetical to them. Um, was there later in the Commonwealth uh, the emergence of, you might call, seditious publications of uh, those who did not support the way the Commonwealth was going? Did, did that emerge, or did they keep a firm hand on the media, as it were, of the time? Yeah, so essentially, um, the, the, what happens is that during the, the 1640s, the, the censorship um, regime kind of breaks breaks down largely. So you get this massive explosion of um, different viewpoints as expressed, expressed in print, which is um, characterised by some of those things I was quoting, the, describing the, the, the um, you know, leaders of the Republic in all those terms. Um, the, 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 the Republic manages to re-establish a reasonable amount of control over publications, but it never is like, it never kind of goes back to how it was. So, so um, for example, when you get, when Cromwell dies and there's a big you know, a big kind of question mark, really, about what, you know, what's going to happen. Um, you really see that expressed in, in pamphlets and, and um, uh, you know, popular print and literature. And when John Bradshaw dies, which he does just before the, before the, um, before the restoration of the monarchy, he dies in the autumn of 1659, um, loads of uh, fake obituaries are written for him, like joke obituaries saying, you know, the, the Prince of Darkness is waiting to receive him, you know, with his, with his, you know, with his wife, the Whore of Babylon, you know. So um, there's, it's, real, it's real sort of black humour. So um, a market is established for subversive or seditious or whatever, you know, but kind of counter to the, to the, to the regime in power view, which, n which never goes away. And that's a really big change, you know, because that is about a sort of live debate or a kind of, you know, questioning of the regime of a sort which, you know, if you go back a generation, you, know, you absolutely weren't getting to anything like the same degree. George Monk's role is key to the start and end of the Commonwealth. Why is he virtually unknown in our history? Ah, oh, question after my own heart. I would, put a I would add to that. I said, why is George Monk unknown? And why is his wife completely unknown? I mean, Anne Monk, George Monk's wife, who I mentioned very briefly, does not even have an entry in the Dictionary of National Biography, which has 60,000 entries in it, and she doesn't even get one. And she was absolutely clearly the person who talked her husband into... Um, leading uh, a, a kind of, you know, a, a, a great army marching to London to re-establish Parliament's right to sit. Um, and uh, it's a very interesting, I mean, aside from her role, which I think is, and I've done a piece for History Today about it, I think it's a really interesting story about how women get written out of history. But, um, but, but together, both of them have really, you know, lost their spot. They were, at the time in 1660, because there's no doubt George Monk, you know, with Anne at his side, 
pretty much single-handedly restored the monarchy. I mean, because he, he was an army general. He was the only person who had the authority, the power, the number of people under him, and the kind of the, the, the judgment to pull off a, a business where he got the army, as it were, to be the agent of the restoration. Um, and he's been written out. And I think it's partly because... Sorry, what I was going to say is at the time, people said they will build statues to you. Your name will be, you know, will be remembered. Every, everyone at school will, you know, be able to recite your dates. Nothing. There is no, there's only one statue, which is one put up by his son, which is on his tomb in Westminster Abbey. Nothing else. Outside Parliament, who's there a statue of? Oliver Cromwell, who was the one who, on about six separate occasions, physically marches the, or expels parliamentarians from Parliament. Um, so it's a very interesting thing, and I, to, to the, in, from the point of view of the reason why, I think it's, it's a lot to do with the fact that um, once the restoration happens, none of the kind of royalist establishment really wants to draw attention to the fact that they hadn't always been there, you know, that there had been the need for this, you know, this soldier... Uh, who'd, who, had, who had, of course, been a soldier who'd fought for Oliver Cromwell for many years, who'd been a great friend of Cromwell's, uh, it, that it was his change of attitude that had brought about the restoration. So there's a kind of... He, in his lifetime, which didn't go on that... He died in the end of the 1660s. You know, he's given lots of... He's given titles and dukedom and lots of money and so on. But thereafter, you know, there was a kind of veil was drawn over it because, you know, it made it, it, made it clear that it was... A pretty close-run thing, you know. It wasn't an inevitability. It wasn't the acclamation of the population that brought, brought about the restoration. It was the actions of, a, of a, an officer of Oliver Cromwell's own army. Thank you. That was a really fantastic talk. Um, uh, I've got a question. We're in the city of London, and I wonder what role the city played during this time of the Republic, and what physical traces there are, um, and you might have already answered that, of, of this period in the streets of London today, if people are looking for sort of little, little visual mm. reminders or monuments to that time. Very good question. So London is really important. Um, London is very important um, at every stage, and it is a kind of bellwether of the views of the nation. I mean, first of all, London, of course, is the great financial centre. So something like the business of the, the, the military campaign in Ireland is funded by investors from London. So that, and they are told they're going to be paid back in, in lands from confiscated off the Irish. So uh, so on the one hand, and then they're investing in it because they see it as a good investment. You know, there's a kind of, you know, it's ever the, the talking power of money. Um, and during the, at the beginning of the period when the Civil War happens and, uh, you know, Charles I um, flees London and so on, it is very much to do with the fact that London's sympathies are very much with the parliamentarians. Um, however, once we get into the 1650s, um, uh, uh, how, the attitude of London is really important and crucially uh, the, the fall of the Republic is very much connected to the view of, um, of Londoners. And really interestingly, to the views of young people. Because London has this huge population of apprentices, you know, because people are learning their trades. They spend seven years, I think it is, um, between you know, the age of whatever it is, 15 and 22 or something like that. And by the time you get to the end of the 1650s, you've got this really big population of people for whom... Like, the arguments of the Civil War might as well be arguments about the Armada. I mean, it was that long ago. Um, you know, you're talking about 15 years ago. They might not even have been born when, you know, the Civil War bro broke out. And all, this, all the talk about, you know, Charles I um, trampling on people's liberties, you know, extending taxes and so on, those people are looking around and saying, well, hang on a second. Taxes are much higher now, if they were to calculate it, than they ever had been under Charles I, which they definitely were. Um, and as for liberties, you know, I mean, look at this. There's the run parliament, and then they're expelled, and then there's another, you know, other parliaments, and then they're given their marching orders. So uh, the view of London is crucial. And when George Monk marches to London with his army, the point about marching to London is partly about because that's where, you know, the, the headquarters of the army are and parliament meets, but it's also because that, that is London. And when, when, um, when George Monk... Um, finally decides he's definitely um, going to kind of throw his... He's definitely going to kind of part company with the Republican regime. It's when he moves his, his um, headquarters from Westminster into the city of London. And it's it, right here within the square mile that he then says... He, he essentially makes the announcement about upholding a, a free parliament that, 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 that is the kind of... The, the klaxon, that the, the, the game is up on the Republic. So... 
uh, and having the power of London at, with him it was crucial to that. So, so London is really, really important. And in terms of, of um, things that still survive, I mean, the banqueting house, which I showed you, is still there on Whitehall, where Charles I walked out of the window and the diplomats leant out. That's absolutely still there. St. James's Palace was one of the big army headquarters during the Civil War, which is, is still there, and, you know, the Tudor building um, as we know it. The Tower of London, you know, was a very important um, site during the, the loss of the tower to Charles I during the Civil War was, you know, the, the first step in the kind of loss of London because it's where the, all the gunpowder, the great uh, kind of store of ordnance was kept. And you can, you can see there very much still the geography of, and the physicality of the, of the world of this time and many churches too. Thank you again, Dr. Kay. Thank you so much.